Welcome to the Talks on Law California MCLE podcast, interviews with leading attorneys, professors, and judges on important and thought-provoking legal topics. And now for the interview. In the 2012 election, more Pennsylvanians voted for Democratic candidates than for Republicans to the United States Congress. And yet that election sent 13 Republicans and only five Democrats to the House of Representatives. Hi, welcome to Talks on Law. I'm Suraj Patel, and with me today is Professor Samuel Isaacaroff of NYU School of Law, a leading expert in the field. Professor, it's great to have you here today. Thanks. Well, Professor, you want to just walk us through that, this idea of gerrymandering? People hear about it, but most people don't seem to understand exactly what this arcane process entails. Well, every four years, two years, six years, uh, the civics uh, basic rule is that the voters get to pick their representatives. Once every 10 years, however, we invert that and the representatives get to pick their voters. They get to draw the district lines. They get to divvy us up in ways that basically they know what's going to come out of the election. Gerrymandering is very simply the art of making the opposing party waste as many votes as possible. And the result is that we get huge distortions in the outcomes of elections when one party is able to control the process. And this is a process that's been going on since the start of American democracy. Right. The fir very first efforts at, uh, at gerrymandering in the United States were the attempt to keep Patrick Henry out of the Virginia House in the pre-revolutionary period, the attempt to keep uh, James Madison out of the Virginia Senate in the post-revolutionary period. The term gerrymandering comes from uh, Governor Gary of, of Massachusetts, who drew a uh, district lines for the early representation in Massachusetts that somebody said looked like the salamander, and hence the term became the gerrymander, and now we pronounce it gerrymander. It goes way back. It's a problem anytime you have territorial districts. So, Professor, let me ask you, it seems that the idea of allowing the actual electeds to decide who the electorate is or how the electorate's composed is antithetical to fairness and representative democracy because we're getting unrepresentative outcomes. So tell me, how is this allowed? Well, there's always a problem when you let the foxes guard the hen house, right? That's the, the issue is it's an insider's game and the last people you want to entrust with control of it is the insiders. But it turns out that gerrymanders have come in two flavors. And we tend to be mostly concerned about one, but the other is more pernicious. The one that we're concerned about is the one that you described. In Pennsylvania, you had the Republican control, and so they wasted a lot of Democratic votes by carefully designing the districts, and the Republicans came out well ahead. In most states in the United States right now, that kind of gerrymandering doesn't go on all that much. Instead, the parties have worked things out among themselves and they engage in something which the insiders call a bipartisan gerrymander. That is, we'll agree you'll have your safe 60-40 districts and we'll have our safe 60-40 districts. And the reason that that's more pernicious is that then both parties are running in safe 
and safe areas where the other party doesn't matter. So the only election that matters is the primary, and the primary becomes the echo chamber of like-minded people. And in primaries, you get low-level turnout, you get uh, the most intense partisans, and so it drives the parties to the edges and contributes strongly to the partisanship, the excessive partisanship, and the dysfunctionality of Congress and state legislatures that we see all over the country right now. Yeah, this is what's fascinating to me. I mean, we, we, we have poll after poll uh, talking, showing us on, on many issues that Americans broadly or a, a strong majority of Americans agree on, and yet you, you won't get action because the actual individual districts these congressmen represent are not competitive at all. Right, you get the broad middle. There's a, there's a, a, in social science, we talk about a normal distribution. That is, you get a bell curve, and most people are in the bulk of the center. But the elections take place at the, at the ends, at the tails, as they're called. And at the tails, the extremes dominate. And so in a Republican district, you're going to run hard on certain issues, whether it's immigration, gun control, abortion. And in the Democratic districts, you're going to run hard on certain questions, such as higher taxes, uh, gun control, immigration rights, whatever it is. And you're not going to get the broad mass of the population engaged. Partially, they don't turn out for primaries. Partially, the, pri the elections are within the Republican Party and within the Democratic Party, so you don't have the contestation. It almost feels like there's an old boys club that, uh, that sits back in a dark room somewhere with Republicans and Democrats and says, hey, you know, we like being in power. So, so a lot of gerrymandering is built around incumbency protection. Well, that's the name of the game. And it's actually a point of tension between the national political parties and the local elected officials. Local elected officials want their district to be 70% of their backers because that way you're, you're in for life. And, you know, at, at some points we do comparisons that there was, there was more turnover in the old Soviet Politburo than there is in the U.S. Congress. And so that gives you a sense of how acute the problem can be. The National Party, though, sees each district as part of its national mandate, and they want the districts to be 52-48, 53-47. They want to not waste votes so they can maybe pick up one or two more seats. So that's a point of tension, but largely the incumbents drive, drive the system, and that's the difficulty right. in, in, in the area. I mean, what's fascinating, and, and I guess an important takeaway here, is that Obviously, you can make strategic choices about the rules of the game beforehand and dramatically affect the outcomes. Right. The question is, what, what will shake that up? It's, it's intuitively wrong. And, and even the people who have been most resistant to change admit that there's a stench about this. When insiders control their own fate, we don't want corporate insiders to vote on their own compensation. We don't want uh, people to to be judges in their own case. It's a very old standing uh, principle. Um, so how can we allow this to happen? Well, what sometimes there's change because there's popular outrage of it. And where there's a referendum or initiative process, we've seen some efforts at change there. There have been various appeals to the Supreme Court on partisan what's called partisan gerrymandering issues. So far, they've been entirely unsuccessful. The court can't quite figure out what's the right number of Democrats or Republicans. And to go back, the cases that come before the Supreme Court are an odd set.
because they're almost invariably the Republicans complaining about the Democrats or the Democrats complaining about the Republicans. When the Republicans and Democrats agree to divvy it up so that no, no incumbent has to face a real challenge, well, then who's but, aggrieved? Right, right, there's no one to, no one to bring such so, cases. So good government groups try to, but these cases are very expensive. You have to get a lot of expert testimony. You have to be willing to litigate all the way through the Supreme Court. And unless somebody feels immediately that their ox is gored, they're unlikely to undertake that kind of uh, effort. So what kinds of cases have there been successfully challenging gerrymandering? Obviously, there's racial gerrymandering. It's something we yes. haven't covered. And, and there are general rules around on compactness and one person, one vote and that kind of thing. Can you just briefly take us through, you know, what is permissible at least? I know I understand a lot is permissible. Well, any time the districts look really bizarre, it raises some warning uh, signals, right? And so uh, if you start looking like the salamander, if you start looking, if you look at the, at the Supreme Court cases, for example, the cases that tend to lose on gerrymandering ground are ones that get uh, uh, animal names. So the, um, the Snake District in, in uh, North Carolina, the Zorro District in, uh, in Louisiana, Zorro being uh, Spanish for fox, uh, the, uh, the Bullwinkle District, you know, you go on and the, the ones that, the Swan District in- So we just uh, need like animals or cartoons. You need animals or cartoons, yeah. You don't, it turns out the Bugsplat District was found to be okay and others like that. So you really got to focus on the animals for some reason. Um, they tend to be, uh, to have to be, uh, to conform to one person, one vote. And up until now, the Supreme Court has been fairly formal about uh, it has to be as close as possible to one person, one vote, perfect equal population in federal elections, but not in state sure. elections. But in recent cases, uh, the, the courts have started to say, you know, maybe you don't have to have exact equal population even in the state elections, but the more you deviate from what perfect population, the more you have to explain. And so the courts are starting to use legal tools, what's, what the lawyers call burden shifting, to say, okay, we understand you're not required to have perfect population, but why'd you do this? What, what, what's the idea? Or you're not exactly, you're not required to have exactly compact districts, but why are these so elongated? Why do they look so strange? And the courts have picked up these tools from a different line of cases involving racial gerrymandering. Right. And racial gerrymandering is a much more significant problem because racial gerrymandering has been a tool to perpetuate the disadvantage of minorities in the voting process and then paradoxically became the tool to create the first generation of black elected officials in particularly in the south particularly in those areas that are covered by the voting rights act so the court has had a very difficult time trying to figure out is this discriminatory is this minority protecting how does it work is it required by the voting rights act is it prohibited by the voting rights act so in the past racial gerrymandering was used uh, as a way to dilute black votes across districts. And then it was used as a way to ensure uh, African-American representation in Congress uh, by packing African-American votes into one district. Is that what you mean? 
basically, the, uh, there's an old line that uh, the tools of gerrymandering are called cracking, packing, and stacking. That is, you want to take concentrations of your uh, opponent and you want to divide them into two districts so they don't control a majority. Or you want to create a 60% majority for your opponents and make it an 80% majority. That's packing. Or you want to take the incumbents of the other party and you want to put them into the same district, and that's called stacking. And so there's all these tools that have emerged over time to get at, uh, uh, to get at this. Um, the difficulty is that it's very hard to draw the line on what's beneficial and what's not beneficial. So take North Carolina, for example. In the 1990s, the Supreme Court held, heard four different challenges from the North Carolina redistricting. And four different times they came up with complicated rulings on what was done. And each time they were troubled by what was called the Snake District and other such uh, manipulations of the lines. But all of them were done to preserve democratic strongholds while at the same time providing an additional black district. The Snake District was the historic black uh, migration pattern into from the South, from the Deep South. And so it created a relatively stable black congressional district. If you look at the fights of the 2010 period in North Carolina, it's the Republicans using these same manipulations to try to pack in black so as to create super concentrated black districts and that way drive down the total democratic turnout, the democratic control in the uh, state legislature. So these tools go both ways, and at different times in history, they are beneficial or antithetical to minority interests. That's actually pretty interesting, because now you can think of yourself as a Republican uh, legislature in Mississippi or somewhere, and you can either go and actually you know, go and try and be appealing to that portion of the electorate, or if you think it's a lost cause, you can just stack them into a small you're absolutely right, except I would take some exception with the word now. So this, the history of the use of uh, aggressive line drawing to try to retip the balance as a systematic policy goes back to the 1980s and goes back to two very smart Republican operatives, Lee Atwater and Ben Ginsburg, who decided that uh, state-level redistricting was a great place for the Republicans to get an advantage because the Democrats had controlled the redistricting process in most of the states in the United States and they got the kinds of returns that you uh, mentioned at the beginning with the Pennsylvania outcome. Sure. And that was happening in state after state, perhaps the most notorious being California where the Democrats would get about 45% of the vote and, and historically get about 60% of the congressional seats. And the Republicans decided that the way to go after this was to empower black representation because this would disrupt the traditional democratic congressional strongholds. And they created a program that uh, I apologize to viewers of sensitive ears, but it was called the Clusterfuck Program. Clusterfuck? Well, the idea was very simple. The Democrats controlled redistricting all over the country, and they used to do the Republicans systematically what you described as the Pennsylvania outcome in, in after the 2010 redistricting. California was the most notorious. Democrats typically would get 45% of the congressional vote, and they'd typically walk away with 60% of, uh, of the representatives coming from California. So the Atwater uh, strategy, the Atwater-Ginsburg strategy, was to 
uh, lend sophisticated redistricting resources, maps. It was a day, time when computers were just coming online to be able to handle this. Um, to black uh, civil rights groups to say, huh? you can create districts that would actually enhance black uh, representational opportunity. What they knew was that you create those districts by pulling in other uh, Democrats right. by creating heavily Democratic districts, including uh, bringing in white Democrats who then would not be part of these other districts. And uh, so you start to tip the balance toward Republicans getting elected. This was hugely effective in the South. It tipped uh, the composition of the congressional delegations from the South to the point that basically from the South today you have only minority Democrats and white Republicans. And that seems like a problem to me. How can uh, black voters in the South be effectively represented if there's no reason to appeal for their votes? Well, we have two conceptions of representation. We have something that's called descriptive representation and so they do get a black representative, and the black representative will have an overwhelmingly black constituency. But he's in a permanent minority position. Well, but he will be in Congress, or she will be in right. Congress. And what happens is that those few black voters who are outside the black uh, majority district will have no effect on the outcome of the election whatsoever. Now, this is a broader conceptual problem that in some of my writings I've referred to as the filler people problem. And the filler people are, if we have to have one person, one vote, and if you want to have a district that is controlled by one group, you got to put some additional folks in there who are like the inert gases in the atmosphere. They take up room, but they don't affect anything. There's no combustion from them or anything right. of that sort. And these filler people, um, uh, basically just get screwed. Let me uh, ask you something. So intuitively, um, we would like to think that uh, the outcome of elections most closely represent uh, all the voters and their preferences. And intuitively, this seems like a process that uh, breaks that link apart. So why not at-large elections? Well, there's, let me take that in two parts. Um, the first question is why, why, why do we have, uh, are these voters represented? You know, are they, are they somehow being disadvantaged? So the odd thing and the paradox here is that most people are happy when their representative wins. I got to vote for the winner. And when you have a real gerrymander so that everybody in the district's a Democrat or a Republican, it's great because everybody gets to be a winner, right? Everybody can vote for only the winning candidate. In fact, it starts to look a little bit like the old Soviet Union where everybody got to vote for a winner. And in fact, they better go vote for the winner or the police would be at their door, right? So they had to. Um, so that's not, it, it's, a, it's a terrible thing that nobody feels aggrieved because the, the loss is system-wide. So then let's talk about what has been the jurisprudence up to date right now on what is allowed at the gerrymander racially and politically and, and uh, where it may be going. Well, you have certain dimensions that are clearly not allowed. So you're not allowed a large deviation from one person, one vote. At the state level, it's up to 10% deviation is permissible, although the court's starting to rein that in, or courts are starting to rein that in as well. 
uh, at the federal level, it has to be pretty much as close to e exactly equal population as possible. So one person, one vote, what does that mean? It just means basically that each district should have about the same number of people in it. And, and that's people, not eligible voters. That historically has been people. Uh, there are a few old cases, one arising from Hawaii, where uh, you worry that if you allow uh, non-voters in, it'll swamp the local population. Let me give you just two examples. In Hawaii, there's a lot of military bases, and there are certain parts of the Hawaiian archipelago where if you uh, allowed the uh, troops to vote, the local population would have almost no voting say. Right. And a, a better example comes from the city of Del Rio, Texas, where Prison? it's, it, no, it's a small community next to an Air Force base. Okay. And a lot of servicemen abroad leave that as their last address because that's the last place they shipped out from and Texas has no state income tax. So it's a really great place to claim as your, as your citizenship, your residency. <laughs> Um, this crazy Republican decided to try to enlist uh, overseas voters who happened to be largely Republican to vote in local elections. That's an almost all Mexican-American town. And when, he, when these uh, military votes were counted, all of a sudden the uh, Republican candidate won. Now the Republican candidate happened to have been <laughs> formerly the head of the uh, the American Nazi party in oh, Texas. Convenient. Well, but that was only after he'd been expelled from the Ku Klux Klan from it for extremism. So you now <laughs> have this nut white mayor <laughs> of a Mexican-American town. So there are certain circumstances where your heart should go out to the local population and say, maybe you can draw the line in such a way that it really should be stakeholders and not this craziness that everybody gets the same vote. All right, quickly for our MCLE listeners, the code for this interview, 366490. That's 366490. Back to the interview. And I'm going to venture to say that these are not transparent meetings. So I don't see the meeting minutes from the redistricting commissions or anything like that. If there's a redistricting commission, you will see the meeting minutes, but usually this takes place in the back room. And the most famous was a, uh, a California political operative, uh, Berman, who sat in the back room of a uh, Chinese restaurant in Sacramento. And this was in the pre-computer days. He had a photographic memory. And every Democratic aspirant for office would come in, and he would draw the lines to suit that person. And there would be a standard charge for this of $20,000 to get oh, the district. Not bad at all. No, it's not bad at all. In fact, there's one uh, congresswoman from California who said, are you kidding me? It costs twenty million. It costs two million dollars to run for Congress. Twenty thousand dollars to buy the district that makes me a safe candidate. That's a great investment. And she was absolutely right. It's horrible for democracy, but from her perspective, it's one hundred percent obvious. This, the issue is not uh, the processes by which this could be more representative, more fair, more transparent. The issue is that the gatekeepers get a lot of benefit from the system as is. Right, it's also a problem for, for the courts because you mentioned that uh, 
that there's very little constraint ex ante. But whatever constraint there is ex ante, there's no constraint ex post. Because after the fact, the courts are tremendously leery about saying, hey, the wrong person won this election or this election came out badly, it should be the other way. The, the legacy of Bush v. Gore in the court system is whatever you do, don't get put in a position of judging an election after the fact, if you can avoid it. Do everything up front. And because we have so few operative legal constraints up front, this system is largely unpoliced. Uh, my sense is that until we have a process solution, the law is never going to get its hands around this problem. Because what are some ways that this process is being improved currently? Or are there any ways? Well, I, I think that you can take this out of the hands of the political process. I think we don't have to look at the at a, abroad. We don't have to be worried about foreign influences. Iowa, for example, right? Yeah, yeah, you just look at Iowa. Iowa does it effectively every time. It's an independent body. It reports its findings to the state legislature. The state legislature could override it if it is wackily out of proportion. But there's so much pressure to accept the independent neutrality of it that the Iowa legislature doesn't. How did that come about? How did voters get that to be the process? People in Iowa are nice. So gerrymandering is done with, often done, with the aim of protecting incumbents. The problem with that seems to be, at least for many of us, that it comes at the expense of moderates. It comes at the expense of competition in elections. Well, the question of competition is key. And the, the, sometimes people wonder, well, what, what's so great about competition? I got to vote for the person I wanted. And the reason is that a candidate runs and says, we're not spending enough on repaving the streets, or we're not spending enough on schools, or we're spending too much money on national defense. I, I don't really know anything about that. My life is, is full. There's a lot of football on television that I got to watch, and I can't spend all my time worrying about schools or prisons or national defense and all that. But once a year, something great happens. Two people run against each other and accuse the other of being insufficiently attentive to schools and prisons and national security and paving of the streets and all that sort of thing. And when they run against each other, all of a sudden they're appealing to me and they're giving me a crash course in what it means to be part of a democratic polity. And they're telling me this is why this issue is important. They're educating me. Any incumbent who has no opponent doesn't want to educate me, wants to keep me ignorant so that I will keep voting as I historically have. Competitive elections change the electorate. It's not just about the candidates and who wins. It's about us being citizens, being able to perform what's required of us in a democratic society. With 435 uh, districts, we can never expect any system to produce 435 competitive elections. No. But if we can expect them to produce 70 competitive congressional elections, it's a large enough middle uh, that has to be swayed and sway the public and compromise. Um, I've been 
known for being an advocate of competitive elections. And a couple of years ago, I invited... Is there anyone that's not an advocate of competitive elections? Oh, yes. There are people who, who believe that the system should... Outside of North Korea? <laughs> yeah, but there are people who believe that the system should be handled politically. Um, but there's also the difficulty of creating competitive districts. So that uh, a colleague, uh, Nate Persley, who's now at Stanford, was doing the lines for the court in New York that had the New York redistricting. I invited him to come to my class and he brought a map that would put me in a competitive district just to make fun of me. And so I live on the Upper West Side of Manhattan. You couldn't draw a competitive district in the Upper West Side of Manhattan. I was just about to say, with 450, right, you're yeah, not getting but, a lot of competitive districts. You're not going to get a competitive district there unless you let the French poodles vote or something like that. And. Uh, uh, and so he took my, uh, my block and ran a district that included my house, took it into the Hudson River, took the line all the way upstate to Albany and put me in the district up there. And he said, now that's a 50-50 district. And so he said, is this what you all want? Saying to my class. Well, what shocks me about this is how absolutely brazen uh, this process is. That people involved in drawing these lines for incumbents protection it's happened for so long that they don't even care. Well, it's even more transparent because it's all done in the heat of partisan anger, you know, and that they really go at each other. So I brought uh, a prop for this. Uh, okay. I, my is favorite. It, oh, this is, isn't there a famous? Uh, yeah, famous there's a quote, quote that uh, we use in our book on the law of democracy that uh, that I just love because it's, it's, you know, it's a little vulgar, but it's no holds barred. This is from the uh, post 2000 redistricting in state redistricting in Illinois. This is Madison County, uh, this Illinois. It's a Democratic redistricting. Democrats are completely in control, and the head of the Democratic redistrictors says to the Republicans who are objecting that they're getting screwed, he says as follows, I'm just gonna read it, and you take the language as you wish. We are going to shove this map up your fucking ass, and you are going to like it, and I'll fuck any Republican I can. Um, and you know, there's not a lot of subtlety uh, or misunderstanding about what's the point there. Yeah, I, well, that's, sounds unpleasant uh, to be a Republican in Illinois. But this Well, is, I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm sure this is not the first time they've heard this language <laughs> in this uh, county board. There seems to be a real frustration um, on both sides politically about the inability for the national government to actually get anything done. And it obviously, uh, many observers say that it's because we've just got two parties talking past one another. But the structure of our districting and election system has created it to be so. It certainly exaggerates the problem. You never want to say it's the sole cause of it, but it certainly exaggerates the problem. We've lost the operational middle in our politics right now. It is why our presidential candidates uh, historically have been more centrist than our candidates for the House of Representatives. It is why our governors tend to be relatively moderate figures, relatively moderate figures who are judged based upon their competence and not upon their ideological positions. And some of these folks are more attractive national candidates than they are in the states in which they came from. And so these issues have been around since the beginning of American democracy, as we mentioned. What now? Well, there's a, a famous line from the political theorist Ram 
uh, Emanuel, that never let a crisis go to waste. And generally our reforms come about when something has gone really wrong. And maybe we're getting to the point that there's a perception that things are out of control, although the focus right now is more on the sense of insecurity and on uh, uh, presidential politics and at the national level. But uh, I think it takes a sense of, uh, of urgency. And maybe Frankfurter was right that the civically aroused uh, population is ultimately our best hope. For more legal explainers and interviews with the titans of law, visit TalksOnLaw.com. If you're earning MCLE for this interview, you can enter your confirmation code at TalksOnLaw.com slash MCLE podcast to get your certificate. Join us again soon for more cutting edge interviews on the California MCLE podcast. <laughs>